Today's episode of the Tom Mile Podcast is brought to you by Jeff Coldbeer, our presenting sponsor, serving Point Breeze residents since 1987, uh, which may or may not be true. We actually don't have a presenting sponsor, but it's always good to give a, a free plug to Jeff Coldbeer. Uh, <laughs> uh, hello and welcome to tonight's episode of the Tom Mile Podcast, the third installment. We are sitting down and recording. Very, very excited tonight. Wanted to once again thank Mr. Matt Schioli, my good friend, for being the, um, I guess, the catalyst to push to get these scheduled, get these done. He's always texting me, calling, hey, I got some ideas. I know we uh, I got another person we want to sit down with tonight. So uh, very excited. Uh, Matt was able to get... Uh, um, Mr. Mark Vink to sit down with us. Uh, Mark has a great story to tell. I think he's someone that's um, I've got the privilege to meet. He, um, him, and his block in the the town of Riverton, New Jersey. They have one of the the most spectacular Fourth of July events, the Fourth of July parades. There's there's just a tremendous amount of events that have been scheduled. I've had the the great honor of uh, getting to take part. Over, uh, he's been very welcoming to myself and my friends in Philadelphia uh, to come over and uh, really run a 5K in the morning. He'll have a barbecue. There's a parade that goes by his house. So very excited uh, tonight to have him really talk about that. And not only that, but he also is the um, head coach for the Team USA Paralympic Judo team. So really want to get his story. I think that's a, a really a, a pretty amazing thing that he does, uh, getting involved with youth and uh, really getting them ready to compete on an Olympic level, um, which is uh, pretty cool to hear. So very excited tonight um, to get Mr. Mark Vink to share his, his story. And uh, before we do that, let's hear it from our good friends first. The Beastie Boys. All right. Christmas, Mark. Thank you uh, for coming. Welcome. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Welcome to the the third episode of the of the Town Mile Podcast. And uh, once again, uh, Matt, thank you for getting this going and being the the one to really push to do this. So here we are. But we have our our, th- our third guest, Mark. Uh, big pleasure to to have you. Um, I uh, I've had the the pleasure of being get to experience the 4th of July in Riverton right. with you a couple times where, yes. where I met, um, where I've been able to kind of spend the day there. But um, Matt has uh, uh, possibly recorded with us, so thank you for taking the time out and, okay. and coming over here. But um, I guess I guess first off, we can just get right down to it. I mean, you, you moved from the, the Netherlands when you were, uh, how old were you? Seven. Seven years seven old. Years so old. do you remember? Almost eight. Okay. I remember the move, yep. I still have uh, recollections of living in the Netherlands and the trip over here and, you know, developing as a young kid here. So what brought you? Your, your parents moved to, to the States? Yeah. So my, like I, I told you before, my father worked for the Holland America line. Okay. Uh, he was a cabin steward and 
made several trips over here in the early 50s and liked what he saw here. He saw an opportunity for his family. And uh, so we applied uh, to become, you know, to immigrate to the United States. Back in those days, it was hard to do. You had a list of so many people that could come into the country, uh, and it was a limited list. Uh, you had to have money. You had to have sponsors over here that would sign for you. So they, uh, so they would take over your financial obligations if you decided to, you know, exceed what you could afford and skip out on, on loans and things like that. So we had people uh, that vouched for us. So we uh, came over on an immigration boat. In fact, I just saw a photograph of that on TV. It's called the Sibayuk. Wow. That was the okay. name of the ship. That was an immigration ship uh, with gosh, maybe 1,500 other people, maybe, uh, you know, six, 700 families. It was just myself, my mother and father. I remember the crews coming over, uh, stormy. It would have been in late November, December of 1954. 1954. Right? So uh, we came over, I got was sick. Uh, I mean, high winds, you couldn't be outside on deck. You had to be inside and the ship rocking back and forth and thinking, oh, this is just terrible. Then, you know, landing here, coming in uh, through Ellis Island, seeing the Statue of Liberty as we came through. So it was kind of uh, very interesting. Yeah. And uh, then uh, going to school, you know, starting school without being able to speak English. And so the language is Dutch. But, of course, the people that I went to school with thought it was Deutz, German. <laughs> okay, right. So they said, well, we have a little girl that just immigrated over here with you, so you guys should be able to communicate together. She was German. She spoke German. <laughs> and oh. I spoke Dutch. <laughs> so, so that didn't work out. Yeah. And so I had to also go to a speech therapist because there are certain sounds in English that we didn't have in my mouth and tongue and couldn't, couldn't form those words. Just like Scheveningen right. is easy for me to say, very hard for, for you guys to say. Uh, the TH sound is very hard. So I had to form the th, sure. the, the yeah. tongue between the lips. I remember going through, uh, going through that. And spelling has always been difficult. Uh, I still speak Dutch because my parents kept up the language at home. But I can't actually write. I can read a little bit, but mm -hmm. I can't write. Uh, so uh, school was tough in the beginning. Mm -hmm. well, when you when you moved when you got to New York, did you did your family your parents have a plan of where you're moving to yeah, as so, you got yeah, from so when you got there? When we landed here, we we uh, uh, moved in with our sponsors. Okay. So our sponsors were Dutch. It was a Dutch family that had been here for maybe uh, their parents were Dutch. They may have been here for 30, 40 years, uh, totally Americanized. And they're the ones that sort of integrated us into the society. So we lived with them for six months. And then after that, we moved out. And we had our own apartment. And within a year, uh, we had our own house. Um, All in New York? New no, York we City? moved. Well, actually, we never was never in New York. We moved. We came in, uh, we came in Ho to Hoboken. And we moved... Uh, into North Jersey, I'm not sure where exactly in North Jersey, but it was North Jersey for about a year, 
and then from there we moved to Lakewood, okay. New Jersey. And we, my parents bought a house there, five thousand dollars, brand new house. <laughs> and uh, my father worked two or three jobs. My mother sure. worked two or three jobs. One of the funny stories I could tell you about uh, about nine months after we moved here, uh, my cousins followed my mother's brother and his wife followed us with a, an infant son. And uh, we lived together for six months together and rented. And then we moved to Lakewood to buy a house, and they moved too. They bought a house right next to ours. Uh, and like I told you, language was an issue. Uh, I remember my aunt buying some food for my, my cousin, saying, hey, this is, food is delicious and very inexpensive. <laughs> and it was called Dash. D-A-S-H and it was Dash dog food but didn't have a picture <laughs> didn't have a picture for a dog yeah, on it yeah, it just sure. had Dash on inexpensive it very yeah. inexpensive and it tasted probably like hash or something right, like that right. and she cooked it up and thought it was great and uh, <laughs> I remember that's something that she did anyway uh, so we moved uh, to Lakewood uh, uh, my father uh, managed golf courses okay so we went from Lakewood had a golf course, and then from Lakewood we went to Asbury Park, and then from Asbury Park to Tuckerton, and then to Spring Lake. I wasn't always along for the ride there because I went to school in between. But by and large, he managed golf courses, and that's how he made his uh, sure you know his pathway through life. Sure, sure. So I, I can I can just think about so you're seven years old. I mean. What, I mean, was the hardest thing to adjust to learning the new language, I guess, looking back at it? or what, what? You know, language was pretty easy for a seven-year-old. You had TV, which was mesmerizing sure. for a kid. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't have that back in the Netherlands. Do you remember what shows? Uh, I remember Winky Dink. Okay. I remember black and white cartoons in the morning. Uh, Farmer Gray. I've heard and, Farmer Gray. And, uh, gosh, what else? Uh there was a cat, Felix the cat. Felix the cat. Felix, yeah. And I always loved the little rascals. <laughs> right. But these are the kind of shows that were on TV. Sure. So, you know, I caught on pretty quick to the language. Uh, speaking is a lot easier than writing it. Okay. So writing's always been tough. Uh, easier now after, yeah. you know, <laughs> 60 plus years being here, but I remember the language was pretty hard. Do you ever remember, like, being scared or were you always just excited I mean I, I mean to me I guess looking being from South Dakota and I liked yeah. adventures and that's kind of what kind of inspired me to move I guess of it because mm -hmm. I just wanted an, an adventure what, I mean what was what do you were you excited was it ever anything that you were scared of or it just was you know what I tried to do when I was a kid I tried to fit in okay and it was hard to do because culturally there were enough differences culturally that I'd just didn't fit in real easy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the lack of language had something to do with sure. that in the beginning. Uh, but I remember that being a, a fairly tough situation. Yeah, because I can. I remember feeling that way even being in my 30s and moving to Germany. But fortunately for me, most Germans, most Europeans spoke English, right. and they would adapt yes. to me. Yeah. Whereas, opposing your scenario was probably more of what you probably. I could see how that would have been. Yeah, very difficult. Yeah. Wow. Was there ever a uh, uh, discrimination factor when you went to school as a young kid? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the Netherlands at the time, the Netherlands was a homogeneous society. Mm -hmm. 
uh, although I'm not blonde and blue-eyed when I was that age, I was blonde and I have blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And my whole family's like that. Yeah. Uh, but we but we were uh, an indigenous or uh, homogeneous population there. So we did not have dark-skinned people. Uh, there were some Orientals starting to move into our culture at that time because our empire at the end of the war dissolved and a lot of people were immigrating into the Netherlands. So that was the first time that you had this shift in populations, which is really dramatic nowadays, but back in those days it was just starting to, you know, starting to percolate. Okay. So when I came here and I saw the, I saw the rainbow of, of nationalities of immigra immigrants and people from different uh, ethnicities here, that was different. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember still as a kid going to Washington, D.C. Uh, on a field trip that may have been in the maybe the third grade or something like that, seeing, uh, you know, a drinking fountain for whites only or yeah. a right. re restroom for whites only. And that was peculiar. Right. I found that, you know, really extraordinary because just didn't have anything right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that I mean. And still to this day, it's almost like we're kind of struggling to get rid of a lot of those kind of sure. kind of demons. But um, yeah, yeah. But so I, I mean, do you think? So I know you you got into judo. Was that something that? When did you learn or got an interest in that? Is that when you were fairly young still? Or? I was. Yeah. My my father had done uh, jujitsu in the Netherlands. Okay. And uh, he wanted me to be able to take care of myself, so. At around the age of 12, he took me to a club in uh, Asbury Park. We'd moved to Asbury at the time. And he said, I want you to give this a try. I didn't like it. You know, I, I didn't want to try any sports. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested, interested in sports. But he said, I'd give, it, you know, give it a try. If you like it, fine. If you don't like it, that's fine, too. Well, I went there, and I liked it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> right from the beginning, I liked it. And I started to, you know, to, uh, you know, to go two or three times a week. And, Do you remember like what you liked about it initially? Like what was it? Uh, I couldn't tell you what I liked about it really, but it was pretty neat. It was different. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, probably somewhat exotic at the time, where now you look at martial arts and you say, uh, just you, it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But back in those days, there were there wasn't a lot known about it. Uh, it was mysterious, you know. So I like that. And uh, I took to it real easy, yeah. And I was about average. I wasn't spectacular at it, but I enjoyed doing it a lot. Mm -hmm. so. so you were mentioning earlier to us, you know, before we started recording about kind of the history of it. I mean, what what can you tell us about you know where did what the, where the origins of it? Where did it come from? So the origins are Japanese. Uh, if you look at any society, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Chinese, they all had wrestling as part of their culture, uh, as a sport type of thing. It goes back thousands and thousands of years. In Japan, they also had the same thing. They had wrestling. Uh, but in Japan, it was, it was uh, geared towards uh, fighting and uh, protecting the warlord. Japan, for hundreds of years, had a civil war, and warlords had their own standing armies. It wasn't a national country. It was a country divided into these individual kingdoms, so to speak. And these warlords fought one another for dominance. Their armies used various types of weapons, and when those weapons failed, they used hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
which is where jujitsu came in. Uh, in around the 1860s or so, as Japan opened up to the West, uh, the emperor decreed that, uh, because now you didn't have, you, the country was now under one, one leadership, and it was the emperor instead of these different warlords, the emperor decreed you can't wear, you can't have weapons anymore. We're going to disband the samurai, which were these individual types of little armies that worked for these, for these warlords. We're going to have a national army. We're going to modernize. Uh, we're going to have railroads and we're going to have businesses, just like countries in the West. We're going to have to catch up quickly. And so, you know, jujitsu and warlike arts became obsolete overnight. Uh, so that sort of disappeared along with the culture. It was very much a part of the culture. Uh, at the same time, you had a guy who was a young kid uh, from, he's not an aristocrat, but he came from a wealthy family, uh, was being bullied in school and decided that he wanted to learn how to take care of himself and sought out jiu-jitsu instructors and started to learn jiu-jitsu and realized that none of these different art forms were complete in themselves, by themselves, and collected books and learned all different types of martial arts. And under that umbrella, he developed his own club or school called the Kodokan, and he called that judo as opposed to jujitsu. And he emphasized taking out a lot of the dangerous aspects and creating a sport out of judo instead of a, a fighting art. Uh, at the time, it's hard for us to believe, but Japan never really had games or sports. Everything in Japan was utilitarian. Uh, if you would run, you ran to deliver the mail. And the faster you would run, the more efficient the mail system would be. Uh, you, you learned to shoot a bow, not for a bullseye, but to kill the opponent. Mm -hmm. So everything had to do with war and efficiency and how to make the society work. So he thought, oh, this would be interesting to take jujitsu get rid of the dangerous aspects of it and create a sport we'll call judo and which would which would attract other people around the world and sort of would be our contribution to the world and from a sports standpoint and that's exactly what happened he he developed it invented it developed it and spread it globally so now it's one of the you know most popular sport it is the most popular martial art in the world uh, there's probably you know five, ten million people doing judo almost in every country in the world. So this is a pretty significant special individual then that I guess would have the, I guess the wherewithal and the grit and the insight to be bullied but kind of want to do something on his own and seek out the right people. Well, he's an enlightened guy. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he, went, uh, he went to private schools. He learned German and English. At the time, it's really unusual to have those languages. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after he graduated at a young age from university, uh, he became a principal and the head school of uh, a number of schools and universities in Japan, became one of the head educationalists in the country. As an aside, he, was at, he, he took his sport and introduced it into the school system. At the same time, internationalized it with people that he sent all over the world to teach it and eventually made it into an Olympic sport 
uh, which was in 1964, was the introduction of judo into oh, so the Olympics. Pr- pretty oh, pretty recent. Then. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It yeah, is. Wow. Well, actually, what happened was he was, uh, you know, he was on, he was the first Asian on the uh, International Olympic Committee, which would have been in the 1910s. Okay. He wanted to have judo introduced into the Olympics, and it would have been introduced, I think, in the 1938 Games. Uh, but the outbreak of war in 38 prevented that from happening, and so they had to wait. And then after the war in 1945, the country was in really bad shape, so they had to wait until uh, 64 until the country could afford to host their own Olympics. And to, and to have it at in, at those games. What um, what country hosted that year? Do you know what country hosted in '64? Oh, it was Japan. Oh, it was Japan. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is when a country hosts the Olympic Games, they get to pick a sport uh, as an introduction. So that's probably I'm not saying this is for sure. This is probably how baseball became an Olympic sport. Mm. Uh, when we had the Olympics, maybe in uh, L.A. in '84. Well, well before, before that, yeah, I yeah. think we had the LA Games. I think there have been three LA Games. Uh, but the earliest, I think, was 32. May have been 32. And we would have said, okay, we want to have baseball to introduce baseball to the rest of the world. Uh, when uh, we had the Olympics in Korea in 1988, the Koreans chose Taekwondo. Okay. which is their martial art. In Seoul, yeah, I remember those In Seoul, games, so yeah. they brought Taekwondo into it. Uh, so, yeah, the, and the same holds true for the Winter Games. That's how you have ski jumping, and you have other, uh, you know, really obscure sports. Like, like snowboarding guys. Yeah, 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 yeah right. right. Yeah, yeah, you know, you have badminton is in there, and snooker, and all kinds of right. other unusual sports that we would say, well, who plays those sports? Well, they're big in other countries. Yeah. You know, if you uh, look at a bat, you look at ping pong, for example, in China, you have a whole stadium full of people that are watching ping pong back right. and forth. You're looking at 10, 15,000 people watching a match. I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> we right. can't imagine that yeah, here. Right. But, you know, people go to the lake to watch it. Uh, <laughs> the people play out their basements for fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but that's how, that's how judo got into the, into the game. That's incredible. I didn't realize that about that's, each country, whoever hosts, they introduce. Yeah, and they introduce. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, now this year, the next one, it's three-on-three basketball tournament. So, <laughs> so, and they take game, they take different sports out when yeah. they realize it's not popular. Like at one time, you used to have the tug of war. You know, the pulling sure. of the, the that was an Olympic sport. I think until 1904, and they took it out. And there are other sports like that that were in at one time that just didn't draw enough attention. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, we're getting rid of that and we're introducing other things. So it's constantly changing. That's incredible. That's great insight on that. Um, so you, you were competing in in judo, kind of going back to that. I mean, how long did you compete yourself? So you started at a young age. So I started at 12, and uh, so we had the games in 64, and I, you know, when it was introduced, I definitely wanted to go to the games. Uh, and it so happens that, uh, so they had four weight categories at the time. They had light, middle weight, uh, middle, middle weight, heavy, and open weight. So the open weight crown was always the crown that everyone wanted, coveted. When I started judo, there were no weight divisions. So you could have a guy that was 100 pounds fighting a guy that was 200 pounds, no weights. 
So when they wanted to introduce that into the Olympic Games, and the people said, well, we really need to have weight divisions to make it fairer. The Japanese were against that. They didn't want that. They oh, wanted wow. to keep it pure and wanted to make sure no, no weight. So, uh, so they had, had started the world championships in 1956. In 56 and 58, a Japanese-dominated the competition. And then in 1961, a Dutch guy, a guy from my homeland, won the world championships. Oh, wow. So it was 1961, and the, we know that games in 64 were going to have judo in them in Japan. And the Japanese realized that if we have these games in our homeland, and this guy is dominating the scene, right. we might not get the medals that we want. Right. So let's open up the weight divisions. <laughs> <laughs> right. so at least we can have some assurance that, that, one of, that we're going to get. Japan. And what happened in 64 is that Japanese dominated the competition with the exception of the open weight, which this Dutch guy won. His name is Anton Gasink. So after uh, my, well, not after, but it, during my senior year in high school, I wrote him and said, hey, I want to come train with you because I'm interested in going to these games. And he said, come on over. So I went over and trained with him. Back in the Netherlands? And, no, yeah, back in the Netherlands. Back in the Netherlands. Yeah, and I trained uh, with him. And at the time, that was the place to be. There were, that was, they were the best players in the world at that time, or the best competitors in the world. Uh, and when I, when I came back from, uh, from the Netherlands, I was, pretty, I was you know, a pretty good player. But then I was also facing college or going into the Army because that was during Vietnam. Wow. So I decided, you know, I think I'll, you know, go to school and I had to put a lot of effort into staying in school and doing well. And four years went by pretty quick. So in 68, when they had the, was it 60, uh, 60 yeah, 68 in Mexico City, they had the, the next games. Judo was not one of the sports. They had mm. taken it out. And so I decided and it was still the Vietnam era, so I went to graduate school. And uh, once I got out of graduate school, uh, I continued to go to school. And then judo was reintroduced in '72 in Germany. That's when they had the Munich. 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 Yeah. That's when they had the, the massacre there of the Israeli team. Uh, so, for all practical purposes, my time had passed because. Most of your Olympic athletes, you know, they usually are good from 21, at least in these in this type of sport, 21 to 27 or so. Those are your those are your years. years. And the closer you get to 27, the, the it's not sure. likely to happen. Taking a peak, taking a beating for right. so long, right? You can yeah. only. So I, I opened a club, and, and I opened a club and uh, started training athletes. And so I did that for several years, and then after that, that became hard on my body. I started to work in industry. I had a degree, and I used you know my education, and I said goodbye to judo for about ten years. I just just worked, uh, didn't do any judo, and then uh, in '97, we had the was it '97? No, '96. We had the Atlanta Games. Atlanta. And I went to see those games. Uh, well, I, I went to see the 76 games uh, and the 84 games. But in 96, uh, I went to Atlanta and ran into Anton Kasing again. Wow. <laughs> and 
you know, we took a couple of photographs and said hi. And I had a friend of mine who was help, help running the games there. And he said, why don't you come back to our club in Philadelphia? So I did, and I started to train. And, but now I trained with a different kind of purpose. Just wanted to catch up yeah. and, and do well. And I did really, really well. I won a couple of national championships, and I won a couple of international tournaments. But, you know, no, the Olympics weren't in, 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 the in, in no way. <laughs> I mean, but I had a lot of fun doing it. But sure. I, I trained, and that's how I got involved with, uh, you know, with the Olympic, with Olympic movement uh, by going back after so many years. So what, what, um, so what drove you to the, well, how, for, how did you get into the Paralympics? How, what drove you towards the Paralympics? So what happened, I was uh, training for a competition myself, and I was working with a, uh, a guy in Philadelphia, a kid that was blind, uh, in the club where I was, helping him out, and he was practicing a throw on me in front of a mirror. So the mirror was about as close as you and I are from one another. <laughs> okay. And I had him do that because he was totally blind and I wanted to see what he was doing. But I couldn't do that without having a mirror so I could see the front and the positioning and everything. So this kid picked me up and, and lifted me and lost control of me and started to throw me right into the mirror. And I pulled myself away from the mirror, thinking, oh, my God, he's going to throw me right through glass. <laughs> and I landed on my shoulder here, and I, I broke my shoulder. So I was out of commission. And uh, so I still went to tournaments, and I was sitting there, and a guy came up to me and says, hey, listen, I understand that you know, you're convalescing, you're, you know, you're a judo guy. Are you interested in teaching a blind program for us in Philadelphia? So I couldn't train myself because I was injured, and I said, why not? I'll give it a try. So I ran into a guy who, uh, well, actually, I, you know, I started the program there for the blind, and then I ran into a, a, a young man who was uh, a gifted athlete who said, I'd like to go to the Games. I'd like to go to Olympic Games. He said, would you train me? And I said, yeah, sure. Wow. He, was, uh, he was already an older guy. He was probably about 27 at the time. But he was definitely the real deal. I mean, he was very, very athletic. And I thought, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we can do that. So uh, we were, so there are four year cycles in the games. So we were in the fourth, we're, we were in the middle of the fourth year of a four year cycle. So we had three and a half years to prepare for a games. But this guy had never done judo before. <laughs> and he wanted to do judo and go to the games. So. You know, but he was an athlete. All I needed to really, you know, to train him. So I, we did. We worked, and and he, and he made it. You know, he made he made the team. He was, what, a, he was able to go. What year was this? This would have been uh, eighty. Was it, no, no, 2008. So it was Beijing. It was Beijing, Beijing, Beijing game. Beijing okay. games. Yeah. What was his name? Andre Watson. Andre Watson. So Andre Watson was. He was an all-city wrestler. He was already a doctor of psychology, totally blind. <laughs> and he and I, you know, we, you know, it was my first real athlete to train at that level. Uh, and it was very exciting, you know, to, to do that. And he had a lot of successes. 
And so I got more and more interested in it. And after, you know, he went to the games and retired. And there was another guy that came and said, well, you trained him, would you train me? Right. And then, it, you know, I, I, st- I became the head coach of the United States Association of Blind Athletes. And then USA Judo uh, called me and said, we want you, to, want you to take our program, take it over, which I did. And so they had a program with a large budget. And I took that over and got other staff people involved. And uh, here we are. You know, that's tremendous. Uh, yeah, 12, limited, twelve years later, living in Jersey the whole time. I mean, were these all yeah. East Coast athletes? Uh, the ones that I worked area? with initially were East Coast athletes, okay. but now I work with athletes all over the country. Wow, that's, that's so. Amazing. We have a, a winter training camp coming up uh, in Connecticut next month, and I'll have a guy from. He's an Olympian. He's from Missouri, and then I have another guy from. I have two guys from Minnesota. And then I have one guy from New Jersey, the guy I'm working with real close now from uh, from Spring Lake. So those four guys will go with me. We'll be training at a camp in uh, Rhode Island. And then after that, we have a national training camp in Colorado Springs sometime, I think, in April. Okay. But in between that, these guys are all trying to make the next team. Sure. And next year we have, uh, we have qualifying tournaments, three of them next year, and there'll be a about a dozen tournaments next year wow. internationally. It's a very busy schedule next year. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, so you get... Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, so going, kind of going back to like 2008 or so, um, there's one athlete uh, I've, I know you've worked with and you kind of found just from watching TV, uh, D'Artagnan. Right. And there was a piece on D'Artagnan on on Sports Center on ESPN right. a number of years ago now. Um, really inspiring story. Uh, I'm just curious how you kind of contacted him and how you kind of convinced him and told him that you know he could be well actually yeah so as uh, good as he is. It was uh, it was this time of the year. It was right after Christmas. Uh, we had just finished coming back from. Uh, from Beijing and I think it was the day after New Year's so I went to my sister-in-law's house and she said you know you gotta watch this this is a very interesting show so I watched the SPN she filmed it for me on her iPad and I was watching it and I recruit when I find an athlete that I think has potential I, I go to the wrestling coaches or go to whoever I need to go to to talk to them and to send them information kind of, you know, bring them into the fold. So D'Artagnan was a wrestler. He was a, a Cleveland, Ohio wrestler, a senior in high school. And they talk, told about his story that uh, he had a friend, a buddy, that he, they were both wrestling at the same time. Uh, and his friend had lost his legs, both his legs, in a train accident. He was coming to school one day and crossed the tracks and made a poor judgment and the train cut his legs off. And D'Artagnan is blind, legally blind. So they're both, you know, really came from poor families. I mean, the level of poverty is staggering. You can't believe the story, how, how poor, you know. He probably only had only the clothes on his back. That's how poor he was. 
So anyway, uh, him, uh, he and his uh, his friend had a very good wrestling season. I think Dart may have gone undefeated. Uh, and uh, getting ready to graduate high school. I see him on TV wrestling, and I thought, hey, this is uh, an athlete that has real potential. So I contacted his coach and said, hey, yeah, I'd like to you know, meet your athlete and take him out to the training center in Colorado. So we made those arrangements, and he went out to the training center, and they liked him right away. They saw the potential there, and they, uh, they had him tested, but he wasn't blind enough at that time. Uh, he failed the, the vision test. He was very, very upset. I had him retested, and he passed this time. So we had him move out to the training center. <clears throat> and uh, he went to work out there. And within three years, three, I think it was three or four years, he became a world champion. And he became an Olympic bronze medalist. And then in Rio, he got another bronze medal. So... Dart is a very special case, being able to do that in such a short time. Uh, very athletic. But, you know, in learning about him and studying him, I learned about poverty that I didn't know before. You know, we think we understand how people are and how they behave, but when you, when you really look at his story very carefully, you're, you understand that he was, when we first met him, different. He didn't fit into our process, what we had developed. He wouldn't have been successful in that process unless we had changed it and modified it. And so, can you tell us anything about like what what kind of the process? Well, I'll give you an example. You know, you would ask. Uh, and Leroy, by the way, was his uh, was his friend, who we also brought out there because he had tremendous upper body strength. So Leroy went into uh, he went into powerlifting, bench pressing, and just you know, strong guy. So you have meetings, you have to attend, you have practice, you have to attend, and they give you a contract, you sign in, you have to go to conditioning and, and meetings and sports psych, you have all kinds of things you have to do to prepare all well, these guys, both of them just didn't show up to meetings, and they didn't come out, they weren't there on time, and there were all kinds of issues, administrative issues that they just could not follow. Uh, they were given uh, allowances and they would overspend or they would you know, give, give them an allowance, and the next thing you know, they'd buy a, a game or a toy and then have enough money to do other things. They would, uh, you know, they'd uh, come with the rest of the team to go fly to another country for a competition, and they wouldn't have their passports with them. So these things, sure. you know, they were like, like crazy, right? Right. <laughs> and I think initially you're probably like, what are you doing? You have a conversation yeah, and straighten yeah, them out. Right, but right. that's... I mean, you have this conversation and you're, you're getting, you're getting right. the right look and the right nod and everything else, but they have no change in behavior. And that's right. because the way they, they grew up was so totally different. Uh, the way they perceived the world and interact with it was so, was so... It was alien. It was like coming from a different planet. So uh, Leroy just never, he could never get through that. He didn't, but Dart, he did make adjustments and he was able to go through that and enter this totally new world where now he has, a, he has sponsors. Uh, United Airlines is a sponsor of his. Uh, he's a motivation speaker. He travels uh, at, 
request of the State Department to go to other countries to talk about judo and his his journey and his his story. Uh, so he's really made a total change in his life. Leroy has uh, made changes and he's he's progressed, but he's still somewhat stuck in that you know that very very tough transition to make. Mm-hmm. But these are things that I learned, and learning that is a big is really important. Because if you don't learn that, you can only you can only work with a certain type of athlete, an athlete that meets my model, and they're harder to find. Mm-hmm. Where if you have a broader spectrum of people that you can work with, you have more opportunity to find athletes that you can you can you know say hey, this is a great opportunity for you. What do you think? And here's how we go about doing this, as opposed to well, it has to be done this way. They'd scare the hell out of them. They they have to back again. <laughs> Right. I mean, so, that that sounds so it's almost like you get into it and think about coaching and you're going to train. But then all of a sudden it becomes something much more than that. It does. Yeah. Like the human spirits and yeah. it becomes yeah. inspiring. So it, it becomes inspiring. Uh, judo is that it has that effect on people. People that get involved in judo uh, become very excited about it uh, because it has so much to offer. It's just not about throwing and holding in. Sure. It's not about the martial art about the philosophy that goes with it and all the ambiance that is associated with it you know things you learn along the way the journey is really incredible so I've known you for about like almost nine years now and for as long as I've known you've been coaching is there something that something like that where you have an inspiring story like D'Artagnan is that what keeps driving you to keep coaching or is there a goal that you haven't achieved yet with an athlete that yeah. you're still reaching you're yeah, still trying I to reach a, a goal that one of my athletes you know medals at the games that's my goal mm-hmm. I'd love to have that goal and if I had that then I could say hey you know I, I was part of the game and I was successful in it and it takes a long time to learn that as an athlete myself I missed critical components in my training that I didn't that I didn't know I needed and that's why I was unsuccessful if I would have had those goals and had that understanding, I I might have had a better chance at going to the Olympic Games. What were some of those things you think? Well, there was a there's a whole process that goes with this. Uh, nowadays, it's complicated. When you a, a coach is not a coach and an athlete. A coach is really a team manager. A coach is a guy that assembles the other specialists for an athlete. It's so hard for a coach to know everything. Even if, if you if you equated with football, you have these football geniuses, but you know you have offense, defense, special teams. You have all these different specialties, and you you got to bring the best people into those specialties and work with them as a head coach. Uh, and that's the way you do it with in in any sport. Uh, you bring the best people involved. So you have to let go of your ego to say, you know, this is not me and him. Right. This is the team. We have the team here, and this whole team serves this one guy to get get to the end point. And that's, uh, I think that's an important thing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And there was a process that, that you have, that you follow, that you write down. It's like a business plan. That the athlete knows exactly where they are every point along the way and that there's buy-in from the athlete. Yeah, I think this will work. And there's a dialogue, and it's transparent uh, so that 
you get the very most out of a person. You could think that you know this is a way to do something to you know to move ahead, but if the athlete said you know it doesn't meet it doesn't fit my personality, that's just not going to work for me. Then as the coach, you have to come up with a way to allow that progress to happen, but have buy-in from the athlete that meets both your goals. If you don't have that, you're going to have pushback right. back and forth. And it is a long process. Mm-hmm. It's just not, you know, a couple of months. You're looking at years of work, and you have to get along with each other. And there's going to be tension. There's going to be a lot of pressure. You have to be able to handle that, and you have to have people with you that buy into all of that. And if you have one guy that's on the team that, you know, that isn't part of that, that doesn't see that, you could throw a wrench into it. Mm-hmm. And then you have five, six years of work. You say, God, it just... It's down the tube. The guy walked away from it. Right. I mean, all the it's the athlete. You can have five five years of work with a guy, and he says, "I don't want to do this anymore. It's no fun." Yeah. So what? Right. <laughs> what? Sure. So you, well, yeah, you know. And that's so, happened to you before, all, it, all the time. It, it, yeah. it happens to coaches all the time. But the better you are as a coach, the, la- the more likely it's not to happen because you have alternatives and you have you have other ways to approach things. You understand it's not my way or the highway. Uh, and sometimes that'll work, but more times it won't. You know, you have to make it interesting, and you also have to keep it good for the athlete. I'll give you a, I'll give you a very interesting story that I'm going through right now with an athlete. So we put we have the Olympic Training Center and we have a resident program there where we take people like D'Artagnan mm-hmm. and they come and they live there. They train there every day uh, and then they travel and they go to competitions and they come back home and they go to the Olympic Training Center there. So we have a guy and part of that is that you have there are opportunities that are given to you there. You can go to school for free. You can learn a trade. Uh, and you also train physically. But someday, you're not going to be there anymore. Your four years are done, or your six years, or your eight years are done. And then, when it's all said and done, the world is facing you, right? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of athletes feel that, okay, I have my medal now. I've won my medal. And now I'm ready to face the world. When you go in for an interview, the guy's going to say, oh, I like your medal. That opens the door for you. Yeah, yeah you're different. You're dedicated. Uh, but do you know how to use a computer? Can you read or write? Yeah. How's your math skills? What kind of college degree do you have? What are your specialties? And if you say to the guy, I can run mm-hmm. or I can lift and I'm determined, that's not right. enough. Right. You have to have skills. Mm-hmm. So we have an athlete now that's been out there eight years, and his time's almost done, but he has no skills. And we failed that athlete. See, we should have prepared him along the way. And he pushed back, but as part of the as part of the program, we should have said, if you want to stay here, these are the conditions. If you don't want to do that, then you have to leave. But we allowed him to stay way past his, you know, his... Uh, uh, he's a lot of time. Yeah, too much time. Yeah. And now this time is up, and he has no medals, because that's why they're asking him to get out. Yeah. And he has no... And now we found him in a factory at night. 
So he had a night job in a factory. And now, after eight years of training and living there, he might be able to go back to that factory job again without any skills. And that's really, that's a, that's a tragedy. That's not, that's not a successful outcome for us. So we're struggling with that right now. Yeah. You know? So I'm trying to save this. I'm trying to save the situation. I've got sponsors and I've got people I'm working with to try to keep them in the, for a little longer. But, uh, but also with a caveat, you have to you know, yeah. finish off some school. These are the things you have to do if you want my help. If you don't want my help, no problem. Yeah, Take a walk sure. and I'm fine with it. Sure. But if you want my help, this is what I need. Because if you fail, I fail. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, and that's tough. If you're a coach and you look back on that, and you say, this guy you know, didn't get his medal, okay, fine. But I could have done something else with him besides that to change his life. Mm-hmm. And you failed that opportunity. That sucks. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so it's so it's almost yeah. You're all, you're an athlete, and you're kind of. So that's the other part of coaching. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That there's sometimes it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of a kind of a metaphor for for life almost. It is. That's yeah. exactly yeah. what it is. Sure, yeah. it, that's exactly what a yeah. metaphor for life. Yeah. yeah. You prepare these guys to to compete in competitions to win, and that zeal, that drive, you have to channel that into. A, uh, a purpose other than winning at sport yeah. but winning at business winning at life uh, if you don't channel that then it's, it's it doesn't do anything it's useless right you know you could channel that somehow and well, you can channel it it's not you can channel it somehow you have to channel it if you don't channel it, it if you don't channel it you, you fail the athlete and you fail to recognize what sport does you know what sport can do, what it can mean to people. Right, yeah. kind of unlock the the human yeah. spirit and yeah. into, into overcoming challenges and understanding how yeah. you got through it yeah. and that sort of thing. So, yeah. wow, that's some that's really amazing. I mean, thank you for sharing yeah. that that yeah. with us. I know Matt's always said, you know, you've you've you know coached judo, and I've never. I mean, that's a perspective that's that's pretty incredible. So, um, so we've got. I mean, it's about fifty minutes. Um, like maybe we switch gears, and I guess now it's. All, I wanted to talk to you about moving to Riverton in the Riverton Fourth of July, which to me is, and I'm and I'm from the states, and I've lived, you know, grown up in South Dakota, and yeah. you know the Fourth of July, but I've never yeah. seen a slice of Americana quite like that. Yeah. When were you first kind of involved in a Fourth of July? Where where you live at? Uh, gosh, let's see. So we've been there. I guess a little over 30, maybe 30 years, around 30 years. Uh, my wife liked, my wife's from Riverside, which is right down the street, which is a blue collar town. Uh, and I met her at uh, RCA, which was a defense contractor in Moorestown. Okay. And uh, she always liked Riverton. And when we uh, thought about getting married, and one of the places to settle down, Riverton was, she liked Riverton a lot. Uh, Riverton is about maybe a mile or two square. Right. It was uh, incorporated in 1850, and it was a town for the Philadelphia rich. So people that owned businesses in Philadelphia would 
uh, take the ferry from Philadelphia to Riverton during the summer and put their put their families in Riverton outside of the heat and the swelter of the city. So it was actually like a summer resort. Sure. Uh, so you have some of the bigger houses along the river, and you've got some nice mansions in the in the town. Uh, and it's a quaint town. It's a town with sidewalks that you can walk. Uh, you don't have to lock your doors. Uh, and uh, it had great appeal to us. Uh, so coming from a large, my wife's side of the family is large, so everyone entertains. Uh, they have their own time of the year. Uh, her sisters used to entertain for Christmas. We used to have Thanksgiving at her mother's house. Well, we had this really nice parade in Riverton. Right. Uh, we're right, <laughs> right, you know, right in front of the house, yeah. and we thought this is a great, great chance to have the family come to our house. So we started that tradition pretty early, and it grew. Uh, you know, more people started to come to the house, uh, and you know, I wouldn't say it's elaborate. It's just that hey, people, you know, come to the house to watch the parade, and then if um standing in the front lawn they gravitate to the backyard and have a little picnic back there yeah. and it's a nice it's a nice day uh, way to have uh, some fun and spend the day yeah so yeah. so that's the uh, that's the 4th of July that's, that's probably uh, and, uh, and and we had everyone come which is important all the little kids and uh, and then as they grew up they brought their children mm -hmm. so and our neighbors are there, you know, and they're saying, yeah, coming over to my house. Mm -hmm. And the people are waving from across the street, yeah. and they're coming back and forth, and we're talking, and it's just, it's a, it's a real community event. Right. It's really nice. So in Amsterdam, I, I wasn't ever there for King's Day. Do you remember King's Day when you were, what what was King, everybody wears orange. I guess I don't even recall uh, what, and I don't or remember Queen's that. Day, or yeah. I can't remember what it was, but anyways, all right. Um, well, that's fantastic. Well, I, Thank you so much for, you know, sharing that with us. I think you've, you mean, I mean, Matt, any other questions? Yeah, I mean, no, that was, that was <laughs> awesome. I mean, <laughs> I feel like you should be the uh, most interesting man in the world on, 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 on TV for, uh, right. for Dos Equis. Cause right. I mean, I've always known you've had a, an incredible story. I'm just happy after all these years, I'm finally able to hear it and ask you about it. Yeah. So I, you know, we really appreciate it. it. Was this is this has been great? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, and sure. uh, we'll uh, we'll do this again sometime. We'll yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah. dive into part two. Okay. But, great. But really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks sure. so much, and for okay. joining us thank in uh, the third episode. So, all right, thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>